0: Let's dive into improving our state of being. All right, my friends, you all spoke and I listened. I have Dr. David Moskowitz back for COVID-19 from the front lines. This is the first sequel that I've done in this series. And the reason being that Dr. Moskowitz had the highest number of downloads out of this COVID-19 series. And so I asked him to come back to give us an update. And he was gracious enough to do so. So this episode will cover his frontline experience with treating a patient and a case report on COVID, the really significantly positive response he had using a plant flavonoid, and some just generalizable information and recommendations he may have for all of you. So I highly recommend that you listen to this relatively short episode in its entirety and share if you find it useful. I appreciate Dr. Moskowitz coming on. Enjoy. All right, excited to have Dr. Moskowitz back for a second round. Interestingly enough, his episode, which was episode 86, was actually the most downloaded out of the COVID-19 from the Frontlines series. So of course, I listened to the people and I know that his work is valuable. And I asked him to come back to give us an update since we last spoke, which I know a lot has transpired and um, he has more insights into COVID-19 treatment and prevention. So thanks for coming back, Dr. Moskowitz.
1: It is my greatest pleasure.
0: Wonderful. All right. So let's kind of just Dig right in. Anybody who hasn't listened to episode 86 could certainly do so and get the background of, um, Dr. Moskowitz's work. And, um, but we're going to focus this episode on continuing the conversation of what you have learned since our last episode, specifically focusing on some of the cases that you have specifically worked on with treatment and prevention.
1: Right. So the most, might as well start with the most dramatic case first. Um, I thought that the uh, virus might be activating the mast cell, um, and because oops, sorry, um, that was the White House.
0: <laughs> I just got off the phone as well, so
1: <laughs> right, uh, they're just going mad there. I don't know. <laughs> they need all the help from us little
0: people, right?
1: Um, so anyway, uh, I. I used to think that a um, kind of a an anti macrophage approach with ACE inhibitors and ARBs like um, quinapril or, or losartan might help with all viruses, and um, and then I started hearing about Italy. Basically, Italy was the convincing point where people were actually dying in in droves, and it looked like it was way too strong a disease for anything as subtle at immunosuppression as an ACE inhibitor uh, to handle. And so I read some more about it and it looked less like a macrophage captain disease than like a mast cell. Uh, First, actually, I thought it was eosinophil and then reading some more, it looked like mast cell because of um two reasons number 1 uh well really one reason there was a paper out of Wuhan that uh that said that um there were no asthmatics who got it even though it looks like an asthma attack and secondly um there was a of the 140 patients they had 20 of them had hives or um or food allergies or or drug allergies, which is an extraordinarily high number of people to have um, food or drug sensitivities and hives in any collection of one hundred and forty patients, and so it looked like the asthmatics were not were not showing up in the COVID nineteen group in Wuhan, China, because they already had their inhalers and knew how to use them, and so they weren't getting sick. And it also looked like um, like mast cells were involved because that's the only cell that gives you wheels and hives. So I started looking at mast cells. And this was all while I was waiting for my own COVID-19 patients to come and um, trying, of course, to collaborate with Italians or Spaniards or Iranians, anybody who had patients the Chinese people had already had their wave and were not interested. And, and there's a language barrier there too. Anyway, I couldn't get anybody interested with, uh, with COVID-19 patients, including in New York. Uh, I know there's a language barrier there. And, um, and so finally got my own patients down in, here in Miami. And I initially treated everybody as if they were asthma patients. I would give them Flonase or Nasonex, you know, for their nose. And if that didn't help, I would give them prednisone. And, you know, a short course followed by a taper. And so they'd be off within two weeks. So that went well. And some of those patients, none of them got tested, uh, except for one who tested negative. Except there was this one guy who was 18 years old and who had really wicked asthma. I mean, when he first got his asthma at age 10, he couldn't get off prednisone for two years. Mm-hmm. Every time they'd taper it, he would get short of breath. And, um, and he got uh, diarrhea and chest pain, kind of burning chest pain whenever he breathed. This was not typical asthma. Maybe the chest pain was, but the diarrhea sure wasn't. And I put him on um, prednisone because that's what I was using for COVID-19. And he did very poorly. In fact, I had to, instead of taper him off after a few days, I had to keep going up on his dose so that a week later he was on double the dose of prednisone. Instead of 60 milligrams a day, he was up to 120. And he felt good for one day, um, um, uh, about a week or two after starting him on the prednisone. And then the very next day, his mother decided to spread the prednisone out over the entire day instead of giving all 120 milligrams in the morning. Um, she wanted to give him 40 milligrams three times a day. And he did very poorly. Um, he got very short of breath. And, con- and even though we went back to all 120 milligrams in the morning, he proceeded to uh, feel worse than he'd ever felt in his life, thought he was going to die, took nine breathing treatments, which I think were nebulizer treatments and albuterol treatments, and uh, had incredible burning with each breath and uh, went to the ER and probably should have been admitted and intubated then. But, um, but he, didn't, he didn't have a fever and he didn't uh, have a low O2 sat on his pulse oximeter. So they kicked him out. And he went to the fire department where they measured his O2 sat, and it was fine, um, 100%, actually, on room air. And, um, and his blood pressure was uncharacteristically high, but he was having a really tough time breathing, so not surprised. And he was afebrile. So, um, meanwhile, um, he had started... Uh, taking quercetin, which is a specific mast cell receptor inhibitor that we may have talked about last time. And um, did we talk about it in episode 83?
0: I don't think it came up, but um, I'll have to go back. I feel like it did not come up, but we'll we'll dive deeper this time, of course.
1: Okay. So um, quercetin... Um, so let me tell you what he did to quercetin, and then I'll tell you why I used it. Um, so just to be brief, um, quercetin uh, is a, uh, a plant product. It's uh, called a flavonoid, uh, which are the, the compounds that give flowers their color. And so it's very important for pollination and survival of plant species. And um, flavonoids are yellowish, which it, flavus in Latin is yellow. And uh, actually quercetin can be purified, and it's, an, it's a crystal that's needle-like and orange in color. It is the one of the orange spices in curry. Uh, maybe 40% of curry is quercetin. And it's also present in apples and red onions and grapes and uh, cilantro and kale. I mean, you name it, it probably has quercetin in it. Ginkgo biloba is 10% by weight quercetin. And quercetin has uh, gotten a lot of interest lately um, because it's a a very specific high affinity in the micromolar range um, inhibitor of a specific mast cell receptor that doesn't seem to be present on any other cell called uh, the MRGPRX2 receptor. This is a very interesting receptor. It's um, highly promiscuous, meaning that it binds many different uh, ligands. And um, in particular, it is a sucker for basic secretagogues. And basic secretagogues are highly positively charged compounds that also have a greasy spot in them. And the viral nucleocapsid for COVID-19 just as its cousin, uh, SARS-1 from 2003. Both of those nucleocapsid proteins have a very strongly positively charged part towards the end of the protein that binds the phosphate background, backbone sorry, of the viral single-stranded RNA. And the nucleocapsid protein also has a greasy part that sticks, it, that sticks into the viral membrane. So it literally holds the, the virus together, binding the RNA on one end and the membrane on the outside of the virus at the other end. And it turns out that um, it looks exactly like the compounds that activate this receptor. And um, quercetin happens to specifically inhibit it. Worcetin is not a basic secretagogue, but, um, but it's a tricyclic structure with a lot of hydroxyl rings, and a lot of hydroxyl groups. I have no idea why it binds with such affinity to the inside of this receptor. Um, but it, it does, and it's one of these miracles, really, where something that we eat 100 milligrams of every day everywhere on earth and maybe more so in India where they eat lots of curry and where they're having a much easier time with COVID-19. It's a miracle that something so safe is already part of our, our diet, um, maybe at slightly higher doses, uh, enough to, to ward off getting sick for 99 plus percent of the human population.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Well, first, um, I, I'm sure some of the non-scientific people listening are, are um, <laughs> getting a little overwhelmed, but I'm sure those who are scientific are, are, loving, are, are loving all of the specific details in this pharmacology aspect. I will say I've always pronounced it quercetin, so now I have to rethink my pronunciation if quercetin is the right or no quercetin is how you're saying it so it's like you know metoprolol and people say metoprolol so I, <laughs> potato potato right um, um i will of course have in the show notes the spelling so whoever's listening doesn't need to worry too much about that but all right so you have identified this flavonoid and you gave the treatment or you advised this 18 year old patient to begin taking it correct
1: right i'm happy to say uh, quercetin quercetin <laughs>
0: Whatever. We're both going, going to be, by the end, we're not going to know what we're saying. Uh, no, I've confused myself.
1: <laughs> so I've never actually heard anybody else say it. I've just seen it written. Um, <laughs> so um, so what happened to this guy was he was crapping out on high-dose prednisone. And he's still, you know, getting over the acne that the, the 120 milligrams a day gave him. But um, he started taking quercetin, let's say. On Sunday, he took um, two doses, maybe Monday, the day that he thought he was going to die. And then starting Tuesday morning, I guess he took his fourth dose. And Tuesday morning, for the first time in a month, his breathing got better throughout the day. Normally, it got worse during the day. So Tuesday, he'd never had that happen for a month. And um, by Wednesday, he was feeling very good indeed. And by Thursday, he was completely back to normal. Felt better than he had for the last month. And he continues to feel fine. We've since tapered him off the prednisone as of this past Monday. And, um, and next Monday, he's going to start tapering down on his corsetin which I had him at a gram twice a day. Um, but I'm going to taper him down to... Well, I'm hoping to get them down to half a gram once a day.
0: All right. So the only change, really, because he wasn't really doing well with the, with the high-dose steroids, whether they were separated out throughout the day or, or one burst in the morning, the only change was the addition of this plant flavonoid. Is that correct?
1: That's the only change. And, and the response was incredible. I mean, I have never seen a response that cool. It's the kind of response that um, when people come in comatose from an overdose of insulin uh, and you give them sugar, they suddenly wake up. Or I imagine, you know, people had to penicillin in the 1930s. I mean, it was an incredible response. It was cool.
0: Yeah, really cool to see. And he didn't have any trouble finding it. He just went to a vitamin store. Where, where did he obtain the supplement?
1: I think they did have trouble finding it. Okay. And he had to get it in a vial. Um we can talk about solubility in a bit, but uh his mother it took a while to get. It took three or four days to get. And um and so, you know, maybe he never would have gotten bad. Okay. But it, it was very dramatic that it took longer than I expected, and then when he took it. He got better faster than I could have ever hoped. All
0: right, interesting. And I don't know if you said or not, and I apologize if you did, but did you, he tested positive or he has just been a patient that is suspicious for COVID but not tested positive?
1: Um, Well, the first test was a PCR nasal swab test uh, this past Monday, which was negative, but you'd expect it after a month of symptoms. And the crucial test, whether he seroconverted uh, and changed antibodies. Uh, he took yesterday. It's a lab core test, and they say three to five business days. So gotcha. ne- next week, sometime.
0: Okay, gotcha, understood. All right. So really interesting that this was the only change. Now, do you know of? I know on LinkedIn you have posted a few other, um, you know, medical professionals, healthcare professionals, scientists who have. Um, at least hypothesize, even if they're not treating individual patients with this plant flavonoid, but have hypothesized of the benefit of it. Do you know of any other people treating patients directly with this?
1: I, I don't know of any um, actual uh, data. Uh, McGill apparently is going to run a corseton trial in China is all I know.
0: Okay. All right. So we at least, you know, we have this, obviously it's an, you know, it's a, it's a case report and, but there's still value of course to, to one um, definitely, you know, significant enough response that I think it, it calls into question, you know, how valuable this would be as potentially both preventative and treatment. How do you see its role in as on a larger scale in prevention and treatment?
1: Well, um, I, you know, I believe in case reports, uh, especially when you're trying to keep people alive and there's no data uh, to help you do that. Uh, so dramatic responses like this to me are convincing. Um, so I would, if I ran public health for the world, if I was Tedros Butros Ghali or whatever his last name is, <laughs> um, if I were Tedros, I would pay attention to this case report and instead of, um, and I would abandon all other attempts to prophylax or treat people. I would, because it's so harmless and the, and the effect seems so pronounced. Everybody who's immunocompetent, I would give quercetin immediately to. I mean, everybody in a ventilator, I would give a gram twice a day, like I did to my asthmatic. Everybody who wants to prevent getting sick, I would give at least half a gram a day. Um, the only people I wouldn't give quercetin to are the immunocompromised, you know, the kidney transplant or heart transplant patients who are immunosuppressed on purpose or the cancer chemotherapy people who are, whose white cells are low. Uh, all those people are, I would reserve the immune serum for if they get sick. Um, I don't actually know how many tens of thousands of them there are, um, but for the vast majority of the globe, you know, most of the 7 billion, I would use quercetin.
0: Yeah, I do think it's interesting that we have identified, you know, a plant flavonoid that, you know, we're obviously always concerned about side effects, you know, so when we were, when there was, you know, a big, hype over hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, um, you know, obviously the, the large concerns over cardiac issues came about. And when we're talking about something like this, we, we almost don't even have to consider safety. We're really only looking at efficacy. And um, so I I think it's really valuable that we have found something that, and that is readily available, doesn't have to go through, you know, FDA, fast track, anything, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, it's, so talking you know, about the availability, you kind of mentioned um, some of the you know, solubility issues. Um, I know you have this one patient who had a little bit of trouble getting it, or at least it took a few days. What is you know, your understanding? I know some people might be listening and think, okay, I'm just going to up my apple, onion, and curry intake. Um, the obviously issue with that is we don't have a quantifiable amount that we're ingesting from those foods. And while there's nothing wrong with those foods and they're healthy in and of themselves, your recommendation really is to be able to quantify the amount you're taking through a supplement um any any advice on that or is it really just kind of find it where you can find it in your local area or online any any specific advice on that
1: well um you know here i have to bow to people far more expert than i um so the whole uh, natural foods movement uh, uh knows a lot more about quercetin where to get a, you know, which, which part, which versions are more bioavailable than others. Um, and it turns out, um, it turns out some are actually quite a bit more bioavailable than others. You can, uh, uh, quercetin itself is soluble in alcohol um, and and sparingly so in water and it may be soluble in oil um so that may be how it gets into curry or what people do with curry powder to get it attached to the food that that um that curry sticks to um so all those details are um you know i i just don't know but apparently just taking a capsule is enough to get an adequate dose Even though only, you know, less than 5% absorbed, it actually is plenty because it operates at micromolar uh, quantities, which is, um, you know, well within the range that you absorb.
0: Sure. Okay. Well, great information. I think that this is a good conversation to have because it's, you know, the accessibility, I think there's a lot of concern over just even the accessibility of certain treatments that are in the pipeline. Like, even if they do show up as helpful, if I'm in the ICU, can I, is it going to be available to me? And you know, how many days do I have before I have to wait for it? So kind of segueing from, from this case report and this information, what are your thoughts or insights based on the literature that is available now on other types of treatments that are being utilized, like convalescent plasma, remdesivir, or maybe others that you're aware of.
1: Well, um, assuming that quercetin pans out, that it it you know prevents, is safe, and treats um, even vent patients, um, and that the only group that we have to worry about are immunosuppressed patients, then I would. Um, I would just make sure that the information gets out, especially to all the states that are opening early. Um, I, you know, I would let them know this weekend. <laughs> um, and because um, I don't see that there's anything to lose. And, um, and then I would just make it the mainstay of public health. And I wouldn't even pursue a vaccine because um, the only people that you that will respond to a vaccine are the immunocompetent. You can keep all the in, immunocompetent healthy with quercetin. You actually want them to get exposed to the vaccine just in, when people come out and mix again. They'll spread the virus around. You're You're actually looking forward to a second wave, which... It's clear from China and Germany uh, occurs. Um, so you can just uh, immunize everybody naturally while they're protected with corsetin So you don't need to waste time and money on a vaccine. Um, you can start treating and preventing right away. You don't have to wait a year. Um, Remdesivir is very underwhelming in the data coming out. Um, so we don't have to hold our breath for yet another underwhelming Gilead product, because um, I wasn't impressed by Tamiflu. I mean, mm. it, it takes a couple days off the sickness, but it didn't really do much to mortality of bird flu. So, and Remdesivir does even less uh, for COVID-19. So, I actually don't see anything useful on the horizon except. Um, that maybe a a remdesivir-like drug should be pursued for the immunosuppressed. Because with them, if they get sick, you have to lower their immunosuppression and then maybe enough so you can give them quercetin maybe and get them to, who knows, I mean, it's a very delicate balance. Um, But they might lose their transplant their organ while you're lowering the immunosuppression. Um, what people are doing now, I think, is lowering the immunosuppression and just using standard antiviral agents and antibacterials, antibiotics, and, um, and getting some sort of resolution of the disease. But I, don't, I know too little about kidney transplant patients and how they do with, with uh, COVID-19. To be you know, to be able to uh, say what to do for them, but for everybody else, you know, for 99.9 percent of the population, I don't think they need more than quercetin for the next six months until they develop antibodies, and hopefully those antibodies will be protective. And if they're not, then people may be taking quercetin for the next few years.
0: Really interesting information. I appreciate you sharing this. I'm wondering what your plans are moving forward. Do you have plans to continue to treat um, COVID-19 suspected or positive patients, and will you be writing this up as a case report?
1: Yeah, I'm just waiting on the antibody uh, test. Um, If the antibody test is negative, I might send it in as a possible uh, test error because the symptoms are so unlike asthma and so much like COVID-19. Um, but I, I'd of course prefer if the antibody test came back positive. Um, I, you know, of course, Eaton does it. I'd like to move on to other things. I'm, you know, I'm 68. It's not like I have a whole lot of years left. I'm sure plenty of other people will be happy to, te- to treat I mean, I'm sure all, all the people pursuing vaccines now are not going to stop just because I think Procedent works. Um, most likely, is as happened with the dialysis protocol that I've had for the last 25 plus years, nobody will pay any attention at all. And, um, and the deaths will continue to pile up. But I you know, once it's out it's it's not that exciting to treat anymore. I like um uh, I would rather spend my time on things like dementia and cancer at this point.
0: Well I really appreciate uh, physicians like yourself who kind of kind of go rogue a little bit and really do it out of passion you know I don't often get the opportunity to to speak to physicians with your mindset I really appreciate it because I, I just want the audience to know that I mean you're not you're not selling your own I, I think there's so much skepticism like you know oh is he selling his own supplement now now he has a supplement company and you know mass producing you know the plant <laughs> flavonoid and I, I think that it's it's valuable for people to know that you truly are just passionate to find an answer to a uh, public health problem that we really kind of don't still are waiting on an answer for. So I I appreciate your attentiveness and passion for this and for for health and public health in general. And I appreciate you sharing your insights on this podcast.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Dr. Kumenda
0: huge thank you to Dr. Moskowitz for spending a second chunk of his very limited time with us on this podcast. I enjoyed his insights and certainly enjoyed the sequel as we can kind of follow his own journey in the medical field and on the front lines i will continue to bring you more from the front lines of covid that will of course taper off as the pandemic gets more and more under control but our regular programming will continue as it has if you have any specific interests or desires for a specific interviewee feel free to send them my way otherwise i look forward to seeing you here again next time be safe and be well